Welcome to the Vancouver International Film Festival podcast, a podcast dedicated to some of the most exciting live conversations that happen at the festival in our year-round program. I'm your host, Ken Tsui, Director of Creative Engagement and Live Programming here at the festival. In this episode, we present Rob McElhenney. McElhenney joined us at the festival to discuss his critically acclaimed FXX comedy, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia which 14 years on, continues to push the boundaries of what makes us laugh. McElhenney is joined by writer Tim Goodman on the festival stage to discuss. Wow. Did you guys, did they serve alcohol before you got here? I certainly hope so. Is this hey, everybody. Locker? Is yours on? Yours should be on. I'm wondering if this is alcohol. <laughs> it's not. <sighs> you ready to do this? I don't know. You're running the show. You tell me. I can't even see anybody. But we're. Uh, first of all, you know what? First of all, you, we don't need another introduction because we just did it. But I do want to tell you something. Uh, backstage, we were talking. I've done a bunch of these. I've been in the crowd for a bunch of these. And I know at the end, we only get usually like 10 minutes. And you're always behind that person who asks like a six-minute question. And it's usually about nothing. Tonight, we're going to do 20 to 25 minutes of you asking questions. <clears throat> because you guys are the pro. You guys are the ultimate super fan, so you'll know the most. Um, Look at how young these people are. I know. They were all 10, 11 years old when this show premiered. <laughs> wow. They look really good. Um, so I just want to say that, uh, so on September 25th of this year, uh, you kicked off your 14th season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And in the process, you uh, tied the Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet for the longest-running live-action comedy. That is astounding. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is how it's going to go, huh? Well, uh, I, I will have to say there's an asterisk next to it, but, uh, you know, I don't want to minimize our accomplishments, but I'm going to. Uh, we, I think by the end of this season, we'll have 150. 50 something episodes, and I think they did 400, like 400. or something. Well, to, but, but they would do an episode about Harriet's lipstick, one episode, and yeah. where they bought a new coffee table. You know, yeah. that was an entire episode, and we, we, don't, we do episodes about other things. Well, I mean, just to put it, yeah, you do. And we're going to get to what those other things are soon. Um, they, they were definitely, the things that you do on Sunday were definitely not on Ozzy and Harriet. There's like no way. I don't know that that's... I think they actually did a... Accurate. Did they do a pedophile series on Ozzy and Harriet? I haven't seen all 435 episodes, so have you? No, I, I barely know the show, so... Uh, but just to put that in perspective for everybody, for, for history, it's a huge fucking achievement. They're, I mean, if you just go all the way back to, this, to the history of television, they just passed it. They might have done different uh, episode counts, but 14 seasons and counting, by the way, is totally amazing. If you put it in perspective, uh, you know, you've, you've passed MASH, Seinfeld, Friends, uh, Cosby. I think you touched on some Cosby episodes. Yeah, kind of, I'm yeah. not going to go anywhere near that one, Tim. That's you. Just, That's, um, yeah, those are, those are some TV shows that were on. 
And, uh, and then they got canceled or whatever, and then we just kind of kept going. Yes. No, those are, I mean, those are, those are some of my favorite shows. Those are the shows that I grew up on. Those are the shows that, um, uh, that, that I, I, those are the people that I spent time with. And that was always something that was really important to us to, to create a show. When, I, when people come up to me and they say uh, things like they love the show, one of the things that I hear most often is that they, that, that, they're, that I and the people on the show remind them of their friends, which is somewhat psychotic. <laughs> But I get what they're, I get what they're saying, um, that they love spending time with us. And I just remember loving spending time with all the, the characters from that show. Yeah, I just, I mean, I just wanted to put it before we got deep into, you know, process and questions and things from everybody else, just the perspective. It's, uh, you can't undersell it as, as a TV critic who's done this for a really long time. It's really amazing what you guys have done. Um, and even in your 13th season, which was last year, you guys were averaging 3 million uh, viewers per episode, which in today's thing is just astonishing. Like, it's just crazy how long you survived. And uh, I mean, we've known each other for a pretty long time. And I remember when that first episode came across my desk to, to review and I was like, what the fuck is this? It's so, <laughs> it's so great. It was so, so wild. So, so take, take us back just to, to that part. I mean, we know the whole story about it was allegedly shot for $200, but kind of more about what were you were doing then and and what were you hoping to achieve because it was so different from anything that had come out at that point uh mostly i just didn't want to wait tables anymore and that is really what i was doing uh and continued to do all through the pilot process and then even the first uh the first season of sunny um and i was just in in desperation mode and i had i was an actor and i was uh auditioning for things but they were generally things that i didn't like, didn't find funny, um, couldn't connect with. And um, as luck would have it, they didn't think I was funny and <laughs> uh, I wasn't connecting with the material either. And so I was never cast in anything. And so I guess I was just complaining enough to where um, my agent at the time said, well, then why don't you do something better? Uh, and why don't you write something? So that's, that's when I started to write. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you remember. Do you remember that year, the other comedy that was on at the same time on FX? Do you remember it? The f first season of Sunny? I, I remember everything, Tim. That was a show called Starved. Yes. It was a show about eating disorders. For men. Uh, yeah, comedy about eating disorders. I guess it didn't, look, didn't really play. Um, Which at the time, FX thought was going to be, because they had a bigger star in it, and they thought maybe that was going to be the one that That went. was the one, yeah. They put us on after that. Yeah. And, uh, they were the lead-in. They were the lead-in. Growing up was yes. the lead-in to you. And that was on, they didn't advertise it at all. And I think it was on at 10.30 on like a Thursday night or something like that on channel. I still don't know what channel FX <laughs> is. I don't know what it is up here. It's and different channels. I remember getting a call saying, um, you know, we just, they're just not watching it. And we were like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> You're not advertising it. <laughs> you got to advertise it. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, well, we think we want to bring on someone with some cachet because we're not, we're not going to spend the money to market it. We just, they were a small mm -hmm. network, and we were really their f f second comedy after Starved, which was the name of the show. <laughs> and uh, for real. And Starve didn't make it to 14 seasons. Just Starve did not make it. Don't look it up. No, they, they so John Langraff, uh, the, the champion of Sonny, the president um, uh, and uh, CEO and the boss, um, 
he said, I want to pick your show up for a second season, but we want to uh, bring somebody on with uh, a name, some name value, some cachet that we can publicize because we don't have the money to, to spend in marketing. Um, like, and we were like, well, who would that be? And he's like, well, someone with maybe like a movie star, someone with a name. And we said, no, no, we don't want to do that. And he was like, all right, cool. So then you don't have a TV show. And we were like, let's do it. <laughs> who do you got? <laughs> and uh, the first person he said was, well, I'm really good friends with Danny DeVito. And I said, oh, that actually kind of makes some sense. <laughs> and so he says, um, why don't you go and um, talk to Danny and I'll send him the episodes. So I go over to Danny's house and um, it's the first time I've met him. And of course he opens the door and it's Danny DeVito. And so somebody you've been, you've been watching since you're a little kid. And uh, he's like, hey, can we, you know, come on in? And, and, and uh, a, a young girl uh, comes up and she says, oh, hey, um, I just watched your show with my dad. It's really funny. I loved it. I loved it. And she left. And that was his daughter, Lucy, who at the time was probably 15. And I, then I knew we had him. <laughs> I knew we had him. Because once you get the kids, that's how you get the adults, the parents. And he sat down and he said, okay, so what's the character? And we had no character. We hadn't talked about it at all. We were waiting for him to say yes or no before we actually even really discussed it. So I made something up on the spot. And I said, well, you, you shouldn't just be a friend because that doesn't make any sense. Why would, they, why would these people be, at the time we were in our 20s, if you can believe it. Why would these 20-year-olds be friends with you? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. You should be one of our fathers. I'm like, oh, Dennis and Dee are twins. You should be Dennis and Dee's dad. And then almost immediately after I said it, I was like, how could a five foot zero <laughs> corpulent? Oh, wow. Man, you just said that. Uh-huh. He's one of my best friends. I, I could say whatever I want. <laughs> be their father. It doesn't make any sense. And he started laughing. He's like, I love it. I'm like, I love it too. And uh, I got in the car and I drove away and I remember um, getting a call. Yes, their cell phones were even around at the time. I know it's hard to believe. I got a call while I was still on his street. I got a call from John saying he was in. And so he's been with us ever since. That's, I mean, then that's how it started. But the first, first uh, season was seven episodes. Uh, and in those seven episodes, I might be missing one of the topics here, but uh, this is part of what you what stood apart for the show. Not only was it you know insanely funny, I, I remember watching it and just going, "What is this?" And nobody acted like a sitcom actor, and they don't even to this day. Uh, but you tackled racism, AIDS, pedophilia, incest, alcoholism, abortion, guns, homosexuality, sexual identity, and by the way, in the first uh, episode of this season, and I quote. Violent Euro ass play. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, we, I remember talking to somebody I, who, had, who was working on an ABC show at the time, and they said that they had pitched some kind of line. It was a drama, and the line was something about an abortion. And it wasn't played for comedic effect at all. And it, the standards uh, note that came down from ABC was you cannot say the word abortion on network television. In what context? No context. 
you cannot say the word abortion on network television. To me, that seemed way more offensive than anything that we were ever going to be able to do on our show. The fact that this is, this is such a, 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 a massive part of Western culture, American culture, American conversation that we're having, whether you're, whether you're on either side of that particular uh, issue, the fact that you can't even say the word in any context uh, just seemed like bullshit to us. So we just decided we wanted to go 1,000 miles in the other direction. So uh, <clears throat> how, do, how, how, do, how do you do that? So we just looked at Friends, um, which I love. I love Friends. I've probably seen every episode of Friends. I grew up watching Friends. And I said, I, I love that show. They already did that show. So I want to do the opposite of that show. So if their if, uh, if, if, if their mantra was "I'll be there for you," I mean that was their theme song. We wanted I want to do a show where the the characters will never be there yeah. for you. In fact, fuck you. Unless you have what I need, then we're friends. Until you don't, then fuck you. And and then of course written into that just intrinsically is the fact that it's satire because of course we're not saying that these are real human beings doing or saying these horrific things. And, uh, and then we were met with very early on uh, the question that everybody always asks uh, anybody who's in, in our position uh, by a studio executive or studio network uh, executive, they'll say, why are these people friends? We don't understand. In Friends, they're always there for each other. So why are these people friends? And it was actually a really good question because you have to think about those things as you're sitting down to write an episode. And I remember the day that we came up with it because I was sitting with Glenn and we, had, we were talking about writing the fourth episode or something like that. And uh, we decided the reason that they're friends is because no one else will be friends with them. <laughs> and honestly, like once we figured that out, then I felt like we had a show. Yeah, and that's and it's true today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, when we talk about these issues, uh, people forget like how groundbreaking it was. I mean, even even on uh, even on FX, which was a cable channel, they weren't even really dropping the f bomb until you guys came along. Um, but I wanted to read something to you because <clears throat> I think it's important to get at like the topics that we just I just mentioned that you talked about. Oh, also by the way, season four. 14. There's also a joke about dead kids. So there's that. So uh, the the author Chuck Klosterman. You're probably familiar with him. Uh, sure. um, he there was an essay talking about, and I actually believe this. I actually wrote something about this ages ago, where I, I think that when Seinfeld was on, what people missed in in the middle of the country or wherever was that it was not just a show about nothing or it's just a, a four friends. They were really, really bad people. And of course, that's the whole ending of the show. And Seinfeld knew they were just vile people. But Klosterman, in his book that he did, said that you guys were really fantastic, a show he loves, and took it farther. Um, and he says that you were crueler than anything that Jerry uh, or George uh, would ever have said to anyone. But there's another key difference that matters way more. Everyone involved with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is hyper-conscious of the cruelty, including the audience. We always know that they're supposed to understand uh, to be understood as sociopaths. Well, the audience is supposed to know that they're sociopaths. Is that the key for you getting away with all the stuff you've been able to do? Absolutely. I mean, our, our, our estimation from the very beginning was that the audience 
was smarter than most networks give people credit for. Uh, that they were savvy enough to understand what we were doing, what we were saying, and why we were saying it. And it's funny, especially n now, uh, over the course of the last two or three years, <laughs> two or three years, especially this last year, I get a lot of people saying, well, how do you still get away with the things that you do on Sunny? Um, and I, I say it, 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 it's, the it's, it's the same reason that we've been getting away with it since season, getting away with it since season one is that I think that the audience recognizes where our hearts are, where we're coming from, and what we're trying to actually say. We're always punching up, never punching down. Uh, who the target is of any particular joke, setup, storyline, is incredibly important. And we always strive to make sure that the butt of said joke, who we're punching, uh, is either a person and or a structure in power, i.e. not the traditionally oppressed, but the oppressors themselves, or just oppression in general. And then, I think most importantly, where we have failed, and we have failed so many times, and I look back on some of those early episodes now, as a 42-year-old man, and realize, oh, wow, we were wrong. I was, I was wrong. Now, regardless of where my heart was at the time, uh, I, because of lack of understanding, ignorance, even sometimes a lack of empathy, we, we used derogatory language that I didn't necessarily understand to be derogatory at the time. That doesn't make it any better. It doesn't make that person who's watching the show now in 2019 especially if they look back and say, well, this is my favorite show. And I went back, and I see in 2009, they were doing something that was incredibly cruel and made me feel bad. Um, and and that, that hurts. I, I assume that that would hurt people, and that was never our intention at the time. And so what we try to do is retro retroactively ameliorate those things. Uh, and that's one of the benefits of being on for 14 years, is that you can look back to some of those things without pandering, because that's a really important thing. We don't pull punches. We just make sure that the recipient of those punches deserve it, right. in our estimation. Right. And those who don't, we try to do our best to fix. And at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to make everybody happy, but I think ultimately what I think the audience recognizes, but more importantly what we recognize as we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, uh, is that we're trying to fight on the side of the good, the righteous, and ultimately, I know this sounds weird, the wholesome. So, uh, 14 season, you're still, do, you're still hitting it. I mean, that's the, the, the thing that's surprising, and I think there's a lot of uh, other critics who've talked about this, is that consistency is insanely hard to do for any show year to year. Most shows don't ever even go, if they're any good or considered great, like no more than five seasons because then they flame out unless it's a, you know, animated series. Part of the, your longevity is due to what? And why are you still able to like come out on your 14th season and have shows like this? Um, well, part of it is because, well, truthfully, part of it is because we only do 10 episodes a year. That really does make a big difference. I know, um, you know, last year I know you had Mike Shore here, and I, whenever I have any 
questions or whatever I, I want to feel sorry for myself, I'll call Mike because I realize like to do 22 to 24 episodes of a show a season is absolutely incredible. Even the good place where he does 13 to 15 and he's got another show that he's working on. I mean, it really is draining. So when you get to do 10, it makes a, a, a massive difference. It also, we can do 10 in six months. So that gives us, well, six and a half months, it gives us about five and a half months off. So we're completely free then to do whatever we want. Um, and because we're writing the show and also acting on the show, you don't get to take an episode off because you know that ultimately if you uh, go half-assed in the writer's room, then you're going to go half-assed on set and then that's you looking like an idiot. And because we're towing the line of and, and really swimming in some dangerous waters potentially, we have to make sure we get it right because it really is important to us it truly is important to us to not be offensive. We don't want to be an offensive show. And, I, and I, when I say this, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. In 14 years, we have never had one real and or like legitimate complaint about the show from any organization that I would ever care about. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Some people, they're supposed to hate it. That was, that's kind of the point. But uh, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we will just not, we just won't settle for something that's lazy. And ultimately, racist humor, homophobic humor, misogynist humor is just lazy. It's just low-hanging fruit. Um, so how do we mine humor from homophobic characters or misogynistic characters and then uh, use that, uh, humor, stuff it through the prism of this very bizarre television series and create satire. So that just takes time and effort. And ultimately because we love it. Right. I got into this, like I hear a lot of people, they get onto a TV show. I mean, the, the, one, an old joke in Hollywood is uh, if you want to hear an actor complain, you give him a job. And that's absolutely true. Uh, I can't tell you how often I see people get the job that they wanted and then they just complain their way until they get off of it again and then they complain that they're not working and they want to work again. My, my thing is, I grew when I was growing up, the idea of working on a television series was so, that was Mars. I mean, in Philadelphia, well, I didn't know anybody in California. The West Coast didn't exist as far as I was concerned. Sorry, guys, I know you're, most of you are from the West Coast. But... I just didn't, it just didn't make any sense. And as I grew older, I realized, oh wow, that would be a cool job. And then as I grew even older and I was struggling, I thought, man, if I ever had a job like that, I just won't, I won't take it for granted. And so every day we come into work, doesn't mean it's not a grind, doesn't mean that some days I don't wanna do it or some days I, I get uh, so frustrated I wanna, I wanna stop. But, I swear that every morning I wake back up and I just cannot believe how fortunate I am, how fortunate we are that we found each other, um, that we work so well together, that we all love each other, we all got married to each other, we all have kids with each other, <clears throat> we spend weekends with each other and that's just so unbelievably rare. And then you have people like Danny who've had an entire career before and he would just constantly say to us, hold on to this for as long as you can because you think it's going to keep happening over and over again and it just doesn't. Yeah, it's, it's not only just insanely rare the, how long you've 
gone and how critically acclaimed you are, but a lot of people's future series never work out no matter how funny they were. When did you, when did you think that you uh, um, realized, I know we talked before in the early years where it was like not getting any Emmy recognition. It was very frustrating at the time. Um, the critics were, your fans are super vocal. Critics were behind the series. Um, I would just say that I know that for me in, two, I think it was 2009, you guys took the, uh, the Nightman Cometh live show, right? Fantastic. I think you did six six uh, cities. You came to San Francisco. I was at that show. And, you know, you can you can wonder how big a show is or how big the fan base or how rabid they, rabid they are. But until you see it, and I, I don't know if we talked about it then, but I, that blew me away. I was like, holy shit, this is way bigger than anybody thinks it was. So when did, when was, were you realizing we're not just this little show on a cable. That, that was the exact time because, again, we've been around for so long. It was before the advent of social media, which is crazy. That's how long we were older than Facebook. And we, and smartphones and all of it. So, so we did the first three seasons and nobody really watched it. And you, don't, you can't really tell. It's just anecdotal evidence walking around. Or you see the... Um, the, the ratings, the Nielsen ratings, which is a really antiquated way of looking at things, and it's yeah, really gone, and yeah. inaccurate. It's pretty much dead and gone now. And so you really have no idea, other than every once in a while, someone will drive by in a car and be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> You're a dick! Like, I think he likes me, I think. <clears throat> and then we did this live performance um, Actually, we were just talking about this at the Troubadour mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, and, uh, which is a very small theater in L.A. We had the sets up, and we just thought, well, let's just see what happens. And we went out there, and people were, I, they were reciting. We thought maybe people would sing the songs, but they were reciting the episodes. So we just reenacted the entire episode, and people were mouthing or, or screaming <laughs> the lines line by line by line by line for all 24 minutes. And we thought, wow, this is bigger than we thought. I don't know if it was like big, big like scale-wise, but it just felt like the love that people seemed to have for these psychopaths um, <laughs> uh, was, it was hitting into, some, into something, yeah. No, it was huge. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, I mean, the only thing I could think of at the time was it was a more of like a modern day Rocky Horror where the crowd was clearly into it. And I think then people started to take notice that like it's bigger. And that was right about the time I think that FX was getting the, um, uh, you, t- you mentioned Nielsen's. Nielsen's used to never um, rate, uh, get ratings from college students. And you guys were enormous. You were like the number one uh, show among college students. And once that rating came in, things really took off. But what motivated you to keep going, not only just the quality, I know you, we've talked and now it's talked to death about the like never being recognized for an Emmy. Was it, was it, did that drive you personally as the creator to say, all right, fuck you guys, I'm just gonna make this the longest running live action comedy ever to prove that you missed, you really missed it? Um, no, I, I, I can say I probably do most things out of spite. And uh, seriously, like uh, that ship, uh, and and I feel like I talk to a lot of people in a lot of different fields, and it's a very similar thing. Uh, It's not anger. um, It's more like a little chip on your shoulder that's like, well, 
if they don't believe in me, I'm going to show them or whatever it is. It's probably a holdover from when I was seven years old or something. I don't know. I'm not here to be picked apart, Tim. <laughs> All right? Um, but I'll say that the Emmy thing or the awards thing, that went away a long time ago. Mm-hmm. We, we, went away, we, we sort of went from this show that no one had ever heard of to, oh, that show's still on in one year. <laughs> it was literally like... What show, what show, what show, what show, what show, what show? Oh, that show's been on forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we never really took, I, I mean, I never really took umbrage with the fact that we didn't get any awards uh, necessarily, but it felt frustrating that the industry didn't recognize it, even just um, the studios. Like, I remember my, my wife did another show for Fox called The Mick, and yeah, and I, I, I shit you not. I'm, th- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna use some foul language right now. I was, I was at a taping, uh, one of the days of production. Now, the guys that created that show, they, they worked for me on Sunny. One of them was originally my... What's that? I'll do the interview. I'll, I'll film you. <laughs> uh... Uh, Dave Chernin and John Chernin, smarty pants. <laughs> and anyway, they worked for me on Sunny, then they created this. Let me tell the story, you know? <laughs> you know what, you wanna tell the story? You come up. And uh, I'm sorry, thank you for caring so much, I appreciate it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Caitlin does something um, so funny, of course, because she's one of the funniest people on the planet, and everybody's laughing. <laughs> She's not here, so <laughs> I'll let her know. Four people said, woo, and clap. Uh, and she said something really funny. You know, everybody was laughing, going crazy. And I turn, and the network executive that was next to me is laughing. And she turns to the person next to her, and she says, oh, my God, I'm so glad we found her. And I was like, what? She's like, what? I was like, what, what did you say? She's like, oh, well, she's just like a revelation, just a revelation. I'm like, no, she's not. You know, she's not a revelation. She's actually really old. And she's been doing this thing on my show that you've never seen before for like 10 years. What do you think about that? And she was like, you're the husband, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm the husband. He's like, you're here to support your wife? Because I could fire her. I'm like, no, I appreciate the income. Thank you. I'll see myself out. So, so still basically fueled by anger and resentment. I like that. That's good. Just a little bit. But maybe one of the great uh, last things you can do beyond you know, beef in your 14th season, and like I said, and counting, is you know, uh, just, from, just from the critical community, a lot of times even a really good show gets into its third or fourth season and it just doesn't get reviewed anymore. No one talks about it. It could be great, unless it's like maybe the 99th percentile of greatness and no one really talks about it anymore. And yet... Last season, you did something that really, in your 13th season, like got everybody talking, uh, which is astonishing. And I think we have a clip that you might want to set up. Yeah, well, um, 
so we try to just, the, the most important thing that we try to do on Sunny every year is we don't try to outdo ourselves. We just try to do something different. We feel like um, if the audience is going to keep tuning in to watch us, and we're going to keep showing up to make the show, then we, we truly do owe them, you, the community of people that are watching the show, um, the, the, we owe you our best shot. So we're going to come in there no matter what, and we're going to swing for the fences every single day because we don't take it for granted. We know, especially now, there's so many things that you can be watching, and if we're going to stay relevant, and it's not, it's not relevance desperate for wanting attention or audience. It's, it's, it's creative relevance. It's still feeling like we deserve to be in the same um, night of watching as some of the great comedies that are still out there. Fleabag. I mean, I, I watch Fleabag. I'm like, well, I should quit. Right? I mean, who's doing anything like that? Right? And so... You watch those kinds of shows, and some people get depressed, and I just get energized. I'm like, if, if, if people are out there like her doing that kind of show, then we need to elevate what we're doing. And so I find her, I find those kinds of shows inspiring, and so we want to try and do something that's just different. So we're the same kind of show that can do a bunch of dick and ball jokes, <laughs> and a show that can do... Um, the scene you just saw, and then uh, a show that can do something like this. So I don't know if everybody's familiar, but my character finally came out uh, of the closet as a homosexual two years ago, but he's never told his father, so he decided that he wanted to tell his father. So this whole episode is Dan as Frank trying to... Uh, trying to convince me to dance. I, for I forgot the episode. He's trying to convince me to dance on the gay pride parade float as their token gay. <laughs> and I don't want to do that because I'm just obsessed with telling my father. And he keeps telling me, reassuring me, it's okay that you're gay. I don't get it. I don't, it's not for me. You do your own thing. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. The whole episode, he's saying I'm from a different generation. I don't get it. And so we did this scene at the end of last season uh, with me coming out and telling my father and then my erstwhile father, Frank. <laughs> I haven't seen that since last year, but I, uh, I just love the idea of ending this fucking weird show in a five-minute-long contemporary <laughs> dance in which a character expresses himself through the art of dance. It was insanely, like, out of nowhere. And again, like, the, 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 the critical reaction was amazing. I think Twitter just blew up. Uh, shows, again, even shows in their fourth or fifth season don't get that notice. In your 13th season, I just remember everything just like, did you see the scene? Did you, did you watch that episode? I mean, just, you, I know you wanted to do something different, but that's, that was a huge, huge leap. Did you ever have any moment in that where you thought, I don't know if this is going to work? <clears throat> yes. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no idea how to dance. I still don't know how to dance. I learned how to do that I dance. think you did pretty good. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Right? I mean, I learned how to do that dance with a professional ballerina, and we trained for uh, four months to, to do it. Um, but, but part of the, the thing that I've learned over the last 14 years, truly, and I, I think I learned this really season one. I remember we put so much of our heart and soul into this thing, 
And it took months and months to write and months and months to shoot and months and months to edit. And then it's like, here we go. It's on at 1030 at night on Thursday after this show about an eating disorder. <laughs> and we had this big party and we watched it. And 20 minutes later, it was over. And then everyone else turned to the bar and started ordering drinks again. And Charlie and Glenn and I were like, that's it. <laughs> no, that can't be it. That can't be it. And everyone's like, what, what are you talking about? No, give me a Mai Tai. And we're like, no, no we, we just put everything into it and now it's over. And you, I, we realized that night that the, the, the process to which you get there is the only thing. That's the people you're spending time with, which is the only thing we really have, is the time we spend with each other. Um, whether it's in that writer's room, whether it's in uh, that soundstage, or it's in uh, the post facility, that is the show. This is just a representation of it. So if you're not enjoying that all the way through, then you really are wasting your life, because this doesn't mean anything to me anymore. What means something was getting to there. So when, we do, when I do something like that, uh, the process through which we got to that was was way more enjoyable to me than than watching it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I looked for those kinds of opportunities. One season, I gained a whole bunch of weight, and that was a, and I was way funnier then. That's for damn sure. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> in fact, when I was getting into this shape uh, for this year, um, we had a chin-up bar in the writers' room as opposed to the cases of donuts that I had that particular season. <laughs> and I, I remember at one point, I was doing chin-ups or some other obnoxious thing. And Charlie doesn't say anything. He's just walking by into the kitchen as, as I'm going like, like one, two. And he's walking by and he just goes, less funny, less funny, <laughs> less funny, less funny. <laughs> and he was dead right. <laughs> Well, you know, it was, a, it was a creative leap. I know this crowd's going to have uh, questions but I, for, on specific episodes, themes, things that I could touch on. But uh, I did want to talk about uh, you have a new show coming out. Everybody knows that, right? You know what? That, I'm going to say you don't know that. That reaction right there says a lot about Apple+. Plus. Um, uh, let me just handle this part so you don't get in trouble. But okay. uh, Rob has a show coming out on Apple+. Plus. Uh, it's called Mythic Quest. Now, is it officially going to be Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet or just Mythic Quest? Well, the show is called Mythic Quest. The first season will be called Raven's Banquet. Okay. And you are... Uh, so people probably know of a company called Apple. Uh, they're throwing money around, and they have a new streaming service starting we'll just in... just give it to anybody. Just, yeah, it's, <laughs> it starts in November. Uh, it's really, you, you, you know, spoiler alert, he and I have talked about this process a lot because it's really weird for everybody. We just don't know that no show of theirs has been seen yet. Um, you have your super fans here, and there was maybe like 10% people who had actually heard of that. How, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. There was been, I think, what, a two-minute trailer? You play a... Uh, you play a, a software creative director named, I want to say Ian, but it's Ian, Ian Grimm. And yes, that's right. Right? It's Ian spelled Grimm. Ian, but it's pronounced Ian. Right. Just because it's going to be pretentious. And it's also, he also has this hor horrifically bad beard. Um, it just makes you hate him. But um, 
That wasn't part of the... Yeah, I... Nah. Yeah. It's my, I had a beard. Critical takeaway, I guess. But anyway, so... Uh, you, it, it Is that sh- going to be in the review? <laughs> no, no. Uh, so, and it's... And you're, you went to the... You have uh, Ubisoft as part of it because they're a game producer. Uh, you went to them to make this thing. So do a better job than me or Apple Plus and explain what this show's about. Well, actually, they... Um, they came to me. Ubisoft is a big video game, uh, and I don't really know that much, or did not know at the time that much about video games. I mean, I had game when I was a kid, and my children uh, play video games, but um, I just play the classics. And uh, Ubisoft came to to us and said, hey, we were really big fans of Sunny, and we were interested in doing a show in the gaming world. Would you be interested? And I said, no. Uh, I just didn't have that much interest. And they said, well, you just come to Montreal and check out our uh, gaming studio and meet some of the, pe- the people that make these games. And so I went up, I went up there and, uh, and it, it went to this big, beautiful building in Montreal. And I said, which floor is it? They're like, it's the whole building. I'm like, wow. I'm like, how, how much money do you guys make a year? And they sent me a stat, which I was unaware of, but I don't know if you guys are aware of this. But Grand Theft Auto, which is not made by Ubisoft, but this is just to put it in in perspective. The Grand Theft Auto series has made more money than any other entertainment franchise ever, including Star Wars. Did you guys know that? (laughs) All All the merch, everything. Grand Theft Auto. I thought, well, okay, well, that's massive, right? So I'm like, that's just a massive industry, and it's in, 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 obviously it's, it's global. So we walk in there, and they said, we want to introduce you to somebody who is a creative director. And I'm like, well, what's a creative director? A creative director is the visionary behind the game. I'm like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. And uh, I'm like, and, uh, and who, is this, who is this visionary? And it was this gentleman rather portly gentleman with a big beard and a cowboy hat. And he said, hello. I said, hi. And I said, so what exactly do you do? do do?" And he said, I build worlds. (laughs) And he was dead fucking serious. (laughs) And I was like, I'm sorry, you say you you do what? He said, I build worlds. (laughs) And I called Charlie and I was like, we're doing a show about these guys. And so we teamed up with uh, one of our other executive producers, Megan Gans, and we wrote this, this script, and we shopped it around. We had a bunch of different offer, offers, and Apple decided to make it. That's great. Yeah, so uh, we won't be out until whenever they tell us, but the thing is, it's Apple, so you gotta keep, you got to keep uh, trusting that they know what they're doing. It's probably going to be out in the new year, January, February, something like that. Okay, all right. And we'll probably get a trailer soon? I, I don't know. <laughs> they don't tell me anything. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think that's the idea. I have seen uh, all the episodes are finished yeah. and delivered. Hopefully, we're going to get them to you soon so you can eviscerate them or do whatever it is that you do. And, it's uh, not what I do. And, well, not kind something. Of, actually, it is. Kind Some of. shows. Yeah. Uh, yes, and so hopefully we'll be out sometime in February. And maybe we'll do another one of these uh, on behalf of Mythic Quest. Absolutely. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about some Mythic Quest. Yeah, Mythic Quest. Let's hear it. Yeah. You don't have to cheer for something you haven't seen yet. Maybe yeah, you don't do. like it. Yeah, they do. But I appreciate it. It's, it was Montreal-based, so it's partly Canadian. Uh, <laughs> right? It's sort of. I don't know. I'm just trying to play to the home crowd. Uh, so, okay, but here's the thing. You just said that you most of the year you've do, you're doing Sunny, and that you're still doing it. 
Uh, and then you decide that you also, by the way, married with two kids, what, nine and seven? Nine and seven, yeah. Yeah, two boys. And uh, pretty busy life. And you say, well, let's just make so that So you harder. cheer for the other TV show. But you, <laughs> I've created life twice. <laughs> and I've been, I've been in the same marriage for 11 years. <laughs> and I have created life. I'm a builder of life <laughs> and worlds. And you cheer for the other stupid TV show. We know where your priorities are. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Tim. So uh, how did that go over with Caitlin, where you were just like, honey, I'm just going to be like spending the rest of my free time making this? Or She did it first. Yeah. She did the mick. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, yeah we, well, I've spent the last five or six years. Uh, actually, I was, supposed to, I was supposed to direct a movie. And I was going to move to Vancouver for six months. Yes. And then the movie fell apart. <laughs> As movies will do. And so I was out of a job. And so I had all this time off. She went and did the Mick, and, um, and that, which was great, because it gave me really four, four and a half months to spend with the kids, um, spend time at, at home, and, and then developing the other show, so that when the Mick was over, we did another season of Sunny, and then we rolled right into the other show. And it w- really wasn't that hard. I mean, look, my... My, my deal is that I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love my home, and I love my life. So I want to go home to them. I want to do great work. Clearly, I'll put in the work to do something um, that I believe in that has creative integrity. But our writer's rooms are from 10 to 4 every day. Right. That's it. Wow. Um, including a lunch in, in there, because I, I want to take my kids to school. And I want to tuck them in at night, and I want to have dinner with my wife. It's like that simple. And I talk to a lot of showrunners who, um, who do things differently. And I talk to a lot of people on staff who say, sometimes that's an extension of how they feel about their lives, and maybe they don't want to go home. Sometimes it's just, especially in the beginning, it's really difficult to get things off the ground. So of course you're going to spend a little bit more time. But to me, at a certain point, it just becomes diminishing returns. So the same thing with MythiQuest. Um, it was a little bit longer. Obviously, it's a first-year show. But uh, we really stuck to the 10 to 4, 10 to 5 writer's room. Um, and then in, once you're in production, it's a little bit more difficult. But that's only two months out of the year. And then post, same thing, 10 to, 10 to 4, 10 to 5. What was it, like in the bigger picture of it, was it, easy, was it great for you to be able to like, exercise a different muscle? I mean, obviously, it's going to be a comedy. But like, it's not sunny, which you've done like, most of it's your It's very different life. than sunny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the people of MythiQuest are real human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're, what we've done with Sunny at this point is that we are essentially live action cartoon characters, yeah. which is, again, uh, I think a, a, a lot of why we're able to get away with what we're getting away with is because we're recognizing, as the audience is savvy enough to understand, that um, these are not real human beings, right? right? These, are, these are just uh, extensions of id. Yeah. So how was it different, um, how was it different when you were, were able to do this? Like, did it feel like starting over again or, or not? Um, no, I mean, look, everything, every new uh, project is going to bring on its own uh, challenges. I brought so many of our team over, but then also makes one of the things that we do on Sunny that I definitely did on this show um, is you bring in people who are way smarter than you, right? So I, I just, I always bring in young people. <laughs> so as I get older, I make sure that the writers' room of Sunny. I mean, there's some people in our writers' room 
who weren't allowed to watch Sunny when it was first on. They were in wow. grade school. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Um, but, I, but I do that on purpose because I want to make sure that we're staying in touch with what young people are talking about. And um, I'm not um, arrogant enough to believe that I understand everything from every perspective. And so we try to diversify the room as much as we possibly can. And I'll turn to people all day long and say, tell me what's funny. Yeah. Tell me what's funny. I have to believe it. I have to feel it in my gut. Um, I have to be ultimately the barometer uh, of what gets in and what doesn't get in. But I give everybody a shot to plead their case. Mm -hmm. And so with Mythic Quest, because um, the characters are real human beings and because we're bringing a certain amount of pathos to it that we don't usually bring to Sunny, we did in one particular scene in season 13, um, uh, we're bringing something completely different. Then I have to trust some new people to come in and say, yeah, I know that this worked on your other show, but this isn't your other show, and this is what we're. This is what I think you're trying to do. Let me help you get there. Oh, uh, okay. And they're, I'm assuming they're not sociopaths. Well, that's the thing about sociopaths. You don't really know, uh, do you? Uh, you don't really know. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I mean, I I kind of try to take this same approach to the work on Mythic Quest as we do with Sunny, which is we're there to do a job. We respect that job. We love that job. It's what pays our bills. Uh, there are millions of people who uh, love our show. There are hundreds of thousands of people who would love to do what we do. I used to be one of them. And um, I don't take that for granted either. And I consider myself lucky to do it. So I'm going to approach every single minute um, with that respect. And then it just becomes fun. And we think January or February it's going to come out. I'd stop pressing me. <laughs> I think it's February. Okay, I'll, I'll, I think it's February. I'll call Tim Cook. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I, I was looking around for somebody to see who's going to give me the signal. It's time to talk. So we're going to take questions from the audience now. So I'm sure you've got tons of sunny ones. So well, there's microphones going around. Where's a microphone person? So okay, pick somebody on the right and go with that person. Right? Yeah, that person with the hands up over there. Another mic over here. Hi, one of my favorite episodes was uh, the, the first one from season 12 where the gang turns black. Great musical number. Two quick questions. D did, did you do your own singing? And uh, I think our, our, our prime minister may not get reelected because he, he had a picture of him in, in a blackface turn up over a, a week ago. And I wondered, did you have any hesitancy about having the gang turn black? No. <laughs> uh, I don't plan to run for office anytime soon. Um, no, because uh, because of uh, everything aforementioned. I mean, I it, it's obviously a delicate episode, uh, and one of the most important things to us uh, in that particular episode, uh, which was it, it was probably one of the most devastating things of the episode, if you remember, in the end when we do turn back and the cop comes and finds us at the end. And I won't give it away for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it's a it's a fairly devastating ending, um, and it doesn't work without that. Because if you're not really saying something um, that has any kind of social value, then you're just doing the joke. And the joke is, white people turn black, which is lame. And if you're not really hanging that on some type of foundation um, that, is, that is just intrinsically mired in, 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 in cultural appropriation and all the things that we're dealing with on Sunny, then it's just one big dick joke, and that's not what we want to do. Okay, we dick. got. I'm using dick as a metaphor. 
case. Take metaphors. Okay, there's, uh, where's the, there's there a microphone person on the right there? Okay, how about this gentleman in the green over here? And then uh, somebody up front. I can't really see, so. There you go, good run. I'm wondering, when you were first writing, like It's Always Sunny, the first episode, how hard was it for you to really find an audience that responded? How hard was it to get that pilot, that idea, off the ground in your very first steps? Um, so I knew, first of all, I wrote it very quickly um, because I, it just kind of, I just, just wrote it in one day, really fast. And, and then I knew that no one would find it funny except for Glenn and Charlie. And I thought, <laughs> you guys could play these two people. And so I brought it to them and they said, oh wow, this is really fucked up. I said, I know. And they said, it's really funny. I said, yeah, maybe we should just shoot it. So that's when we got some camcorders. I mean, truly the technology that you have in your phone right now, no joke, is better. The camera is better than the camera we shot the first five seasons of Sunny. <laughs> five seasons. There are more Ks, 3K, 4K, 6Ks in your camera than we had. I think we had like L's <laughs> or something in our cameras. I mean, they were garbage. So we just learned how to use um, basic editing software and then... Um, we shot the first one, and it was bad, really bad. Uh, and I didn't even play myself. Um, I had another actor playing me, um, who's David Hornsby, who actually plays cricket on the show. He's one of our executive producers. He's, by the way, he's also in Mythic Quest next February. Yeah, keep cheering for that show you haven't seen yet. And, it's called uh, Mythic Quest, right? On <laughs> Apple Mythic Quest, Quest Raven's right. Banquet. And, um, and so we realized that... that it was bad, so then we shot it again, and then we were gonna shoot it for the third time, and David was like, I don't wanna do this anymore with you guys. <laughs> and so he left, and then I played myself, and then um, by the third time we shot it, we thought, well, this is actually pretty good. Um, and then that's what we started showing people. But by that point, then we shot a second episode. Uh, or a second short film, and when we realized maybe this could be a TV show. But it, it, it took a lot of iteration to, to get there. And then once we had that, um, I think people understood what we were going for. And, and we, had, we had a bunch of offers um, for it, for that, for, that, for that first one. But not the first time out, the fifth or sixth. Uh, question over there to the right. Hi. Um, I just first wanted to say uh, you're a great inspiration and role model, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, first, my question was that I'm on the SFU wrestling team, and I was totally blown away by your weight cut and when you <laughs> gained all that weight and cut all that. And I just wanted to know, like, what's the secret to your self-discipline? Like, how have you done that? A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of protein in my fight milk. It's funny the stuff that catches on. Uh -huh. Like, fight milk. Because it makes you fight like a crow. Is the dumbest thing. Why do you think that's funny? It's not that funny. You're, I see these guys wearing, they're all wearing crow t They're all wearing t-shirts. Okay, wait a second. Now wow. I'm understanding something. I was told that there was a bunch of Eagles fans in the audience. Now, e the Eagles are the 
I'm from Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Eagles are the football franchise there. And I heard, oh, it's the Eagles, that, a bunch of Eagles. Oh, there are some Eagles, but there's two. Oh, there's three. I think, are, or were you talking about the Crows? Because the fight milk has, there's like, uh, Jesus Christ, what are you, there's 30 deep. <laughs> are we gonna get into a fight? Yeah. Are you guys rumbling? Wow. Look oh, at that's that. the game Wow. So, I'm sorry. Uh, an answer to your question. Um, yes. So, first of all, um, I have an incredibly fast metabolism, which is helpful to lose the weight, but to gain it was difficult. I started to, uh, I tried to do it the healthy way originally, if there is a healthy way to put on 60 pounds. And I went to a nutritionist and I was like, okay, what do I got to do? And she was like, no problem. You, you're just going to eat, you're going to eat three chicken breasts and four cups of rice and four cups of vegetables. And I was like, okay, when? And she's like, six, seven times a day. <laughs> I was like, okay. And what's the other option? She's like, two Big Macs. I'm like, what else? And she's like, that's it. <laughs> you eat two Big Macs a day, six times a day, you're going to get fat. So what I wound up doing was, I mean, obviously I couldn't do that because I didn't want my liver to explode, but I started drinking ice cream. So <laughs> I would just take a carton of ice cream and I, and I would just <laughs> put it outside in the sun and it would melt. And it turns out if you drink ice cream and you eat Big Macs, you're going to get fat. And that's what I did. And I put on about 60, yeah, 60 pounds. And then to, to lose it all, I stopped. <laughs> I just stopped eating ice cream. For a 20-odd minute uh, episode, how many uh, pages do you write and shoot worth? We used to make the mistake of doing about 31 or 32 pages, and we decided that was, a, that was a big mistake. We now will not shoot a draft that's any more than 24 pages. And we find that even that, we still wind up cutting a lot of stuff in post, but it still gives us an opportunity to kind of play on the day. Nice. Uh, right here in the front, to your right. Hi, I'm a huge fan. Um, thanks for coming out to Vancouver today. I just wanted to ask, was it a... Um, so when you first started writing, had you been writing for a while or was it something you just started doing because you realized you had an opportunity to be successful in doing it? Or was it a difficult transition from an actor to a writer? Sorry, I'm like really nervous. <laughs> I, are you nervous because 400 people are staring at you and waiting yeah, for you Yeah, that's ready? definitely not helping. <laughs> I'm more nervous because you're staring at me. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll look over here. <laughs> Okay, I need you to repeat the entire question. Yeah, it was rambling. I'm just kidding. Um, yes, uh, I, I had a little bit of it. So the, the first thing I ever wrote was, I, I, I have never been funny. I have never considered myself funny. I was not the funny person in high school. I have friends right now that I grew up with that are 10 times funnier than me that I'm always begging to come move to LA and, and work in writer's rooms. Um, it was just never my path. I was, I was never the clown, none of that. Um, so even when I start, first started acting um, and I wasn't getting those jobs, uh, probably because I wasn't a very good actor and also because I wasn't that funny. So um, I started writing drama. 
so my first script that I ever, I mean, I literally went out and got the Sid Field book, you know, Sid Field screenwriting and the William Goldman books. And I just started to try to understand structure. Um, and I started just writing drama. And then what I realized was 120 page movie scripts are a lot harder to write than a 35 page script. <laughs> um, but really that was born out of wanting to make, wanting to make something. So I was making, I was writing these, I wrote a script and I wound up optioning it and this director, Paul Schrader, do you know Paul Schrader? Paul is, yeah, he was an incredible writer and director, is an incredible writer and director and he optioned one of the screenplays that I wrote and I was like, whoa, maybe I'm gonna go down that path and I worked with Paul in Times Square. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he wrote Taxi Driver and this That's is crazy that he took your first script. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like it was, but to get into Paul's head, you just have to see Taxi Driver, and you kind of know Paul. <laughs> and he'll be the first to tell you. So I was working out of his office, and I remember walk, walking in the first day, and his assistant goes, he's fucking crazy. And I was like, oh, excuse me? She's like, Paul, he's I'm like, I'm here for an appointment to sit with Paul. Oh, yeah, you're the, the new, oh, yeah, you're the new one. Go ahead, he's going there. He's fucking crazy. Like, God, what is going on? And I've read all those books where Paul's crazy. So I go in there, and he, by the way, he couldn't have been perfectly, um, he was perfectly professional and nice. And, but we spent a year developing, redeveloping, developing, redeveloping, and putting me through the ringer. And eventually the movie didn't get made. He went on to go do something else. And first interesting as that was, I wanted to do something where I could control it a little bit more. So that's when I started writing short form stuff. And then for whatever reason, it just, the comedy thing just clicked. And then because I had watched so much television growing up, um, and all of those years of, of, you know, I don't know how, what your relationship is with TV, but for me, um, it went, it went well beyond just something to do to pass the time. It was, uh, I truly felt a connection to the people that I was watching. Whether it was reciprocal or not was um, irrelevant. It, they made me feel less alone. So I would go home, um, I had an interesting um, childhood, and oftentimes I was alone. So uh, I didn't want to be alone, and I would turn on the TV, and I would spend time with Tootie from The Facts of Life, or Mr. Drummond, or as I grew older, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, or Elaine, uh, or, or Ted, or Norm, or Cliff Clavin. And uh, that was important to me, and it made me feel good. And what I didn't realize what was happening was, as I was spending time with all these people, was that I was starting to understand how the shows were being put together, even if it was subconscious or subliminal. And then years later, as I was going in to tap into, well, how do you make a TV show? I realized I don't need to go to school to learn how to do it. I don't need to read some book. I've just watched 10,000 hours of television. Why don't I just try and do what I've already seen? So basically, I ripped off Seinfeld. <laughs> Thanks so much. I feel you, man. There's a, uh, there's a Eagles fan here, as long as he promises not to add. Is that, are you an Eagles shirt? No, okay, this gentleman right here has been waiting patiently. Or if you can get to mic to him. Okay, oh, all right. Uh, hey, so just kind of springboarding a little bit off of what was said there. Um, as someone who's done, you know, writing, directing, acting, and all that stuff, and I'm sure myself included, half the fucking people here are probably actors because it's Vancouver. Um, are you finding, as time goes on and everything kind of just gets 
put towards more streaming services, more of a digital platform? Are you finding a like a, a inherent stark contrast between doing stuff for cable versus doing stuff for streaming, or is it all pretty the same? I'll tell you what, there there could not be a better time for you all to get into this business. It is the wild west, and there is a lot of money <laughs> and a lot of outlets. So what? What really what they need? How many new new shows were there last year? Four hundred and four hundred eighty seven, I think. Four hundred eighty seven shows, and people hear that. Critics hear that they get overwhelmed, <laughs> which I understand because that's a I lot quit. of that's a lot of TV to watch. <laughs> but for people like you, this is an opportunity. What they're looking for are new voices, fresh voices. They want young people, old people, any any people, people from diverse and, and different backgrounds, cultures. They want people coming in and telling stories they haven't heard before. And, and look at the best, the best stories of last year, the best television of last year from such a rich um, fabric of, of, of different culture and different people. And, and goddamn, I mean, for every time I think, well, I've kind of seen what you can do in TV, you see another... And it's not a show that does it. It's people that do it. So you see people come in, and they do things that are just, you know, in some ways m miraculous. Because how can you take a 20-minute uh, short-form drama, drama or comedy piece and still make it feel different, even though I've been watching TV for the last 40 years? Absolutely. If you haven't seen uh, This Way Up, it's on Hulu. They bought it from... Uh, uh, Britain and Ireland, there's an actress named Ashling B. She's fucking amazing. It's kind of like the new flea bag. There's a tattooed gentleman right over here. Love your tats. You're next. Yeah. Yes, hi there. Uh, I did not see uh, season 13, so I did not know about the Mac uh, gay. So, spoiler, thanks. <laughs> um, hey, man, spoiler. it was a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mac's okay. gay. So... Years ago in Canada, we had a show called uh, Trailer Park Boys, and there was an absolutely epic episode where uh, two characters have a big story about a barbecue, and in the end, they announce to the park that they're gay. And, and that episode was just dynamite. It was so heartwarming, well done. My question to you is, your whole sequence a bunch of years ago with the whole Mac and the tranny, did you get the proper recognition for how epic that was? Ending with D and the baby, I mean, I mean, that was incredible. And what the hell is bird law? There's so much to unpack with that question. <laughs> so much to unpack. Where to begin? Where to begin? Um, well, that, that episode with D giving birth, that was, that was really us just trying to hide the fact that my wife, that I created life. <laughs> inside of my life. I am a creator of life, of worlds. I created a world for two little boys. Uh, and uh, we had to figure out a way in which we can have Dee be pregnant over the course of a season and then quickly get rid of the kid because the kid would ruin the show. <laughs> so we thought having her be a, a surrogate would be the... And, and actually, that was an opportunity. I'm glad you brought it up. That was an opportunity for us to write what we now recognize was, uh, was just an insensitive way to handle a particular character. And what's the way in which we can, we, which we can bring uh, her back 
and address it in a way that doesn't feel like, again, that we're pandering, but, but makes it clear uh, whose side we're on. And I think we did a pretty good job in that episode, but even then I still look back at that and I go, mm, we could have done it better, and I think we tried again a couple of years after that. Um, and in terms of bird law, <laughs> I don't know exactly what that is, and I don't think anybody does, and I think that's maybe why it's funny. That's probably why it's funny. Uh, speaking of funny Canadian shows, fucking Letterkenny, yeah, love that. Okay, uh, uh, so how about some, how about in honor of Caitlin, because she's not here, let's have, there's so many dudes, how about a woman answer a question? Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, I'm an animator, there's a lot of animators here in Vancouver. Um, I wanna hear that, now that you have worked for Ubisoft, would you be interested in incorporating more VFX and maybe even like augmented reality, virtual reality into Sunny? And like, what would that look like? <laughs> or, or like future shows, you know? Oh. Wow. Are you, are you offering your services? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the new, the new show has a tremendous amount of visual effects um, because we're, we've, built, we've built a world. <laughs> Fuck, I really am a builder of worlds. Whoa, all right, yeah. Uh, so we've built, um, we've built an entire video game platform. Um, so, and in fact, I just went to Ubisoft um, and they put me into, the, into their um, VR, into the world of the game in full VR with the Vive and everything, and it was uh, pretty wild. Hi. Uh, you mentioned Fleabag. What are some other modern comedies that you enjoy watching and influence your work? Big Mouth. Nice. <laughs> um, Animation. Or comedians as well. <sighs> Man, I was just... Do um, you guys know Chelsea Peretti? So funny, so funny. Um, she hasn't had a new stand-up in a while, a new uh, special in a while. Maybe it'll be on Apple Plus. Mm -hmm. I really like Bill Burr. His, his special and, and Chappelle's, man, ooh, those are polarizing. It was good. That's great, that's great for conversation too in the writer's room, especially since um, I, I basically had or asked all of the writers to uh, for the new for the Mythic for MythQuest to watch those specials because it's worth a conversation because I feel like I talk to so many people of a certain age or a certain demographic who are like yeah this is great what's everybody so upset about and then I talk to other people who whose opinions I really respect whose comedic prowess I really ex uh, respect who have a lot of problems with it and have a lot of issues with it and I feel like great that's what we should be talking about in the writers room it's exactly what we should be discussing. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are just because they just had the last two specials. I'm trying to think of what other... The thing about it is, everybody I know that works in comedy doesn't, wa doesn't like to watch a lot of comedy. And everybody I know that works in drama doesn't like to watch a lot of drama. It's true. And I don't know what that is. I think it's just because you're doing it all day long. I don't even watch television. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, we but, have time for one question. There's somebody, I think, all the way in the back on the right. That'd be awesome. Like the last person in the far. Yeah. See? His hand up. Hi. Uh, what would your advice be to somebody who wants to pursue writing? Well, first of all, you don't have to pursue writing. You just write. Oh. Fucking write. And wake up and write. And then do it all day. And then go to bed and write. And then most likely, it's going to be garbage. So throw it out. 
and then start over, and then do it, make it better, and then do it again, write some more. But most importantly, if, if your intention is, I'm assuming you don't mean novellas, you want to write for film and television? Yeah. yeah, then make it. Because, because writing, so many things in, can be just lost, right? So, so you're writing all this like, this incredible subtext, right? Well, I can guarantee you that anybody who's reading it outside of your closest confidants, and even they're barely getting through it, but trust me, they're just, they're just turning through it, looking for the joke or looking for the turn or looking for the twist. And so you're missing so much. But if you can work with an actor and get he or she to fully commit and emote to what it is that you're, emote what you're, what you're trying to convey through, through the written word, then you've actually got something. And that doesn't mean you have to go make a feature film. But even if you're just taking out your phone and shooting a scene, shoot a scene, workshop it. Because that's the one thing that we notice too is that, man, sometimes I'll write something that I think is just, <laughs> this is, this is, this can't lose. It's going to kill. It's going to be amazing. I can't, this is 14 years into a show and knowing these people. And then, then they get it, they read it, we read it out loud, and I'm like, well, that was shit. <laughs> it just didn't work. And so you have to be able to then adapt from there. So I think the number one thing that I have been telling people for years and years and years, and now you just have, you have it in your pocket, is just make it. Just go make it. And then when someone tells you, and they inevitably will, that you're not going to be able to do anything with it, that it doesn't work, that it's not funny, that you're going to fail. Just ignore them. Keep going forward and keep making yo shit. Wow. That was great. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Drive safely. That was totally the spirit of VIF. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation recorded live from the Vancouver International Film Festival. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Creator Talks and Masterclasses are programmed by Fran Bergen. The podcast is created by Ellen Hadley and Clem Lobey on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil Nation.